everyone. This is the American Outlaws podcast, or as we like to say, the soccer podcast where we talk about soccer and other things. And as you've noticed, uh, I'm not Justin or Corey. Um, this is Donald. And uh, tonight we have a very special episode for you, uh, or whenever you're listening. Uh, we are in the final week of Black History Month, where we recognize the achievements of Black people in our society, not just here in the United States, but around the world. And it's also a month where we look back at how we get here, how we got here, and recognize not just the successes, but also the trials and tribulations and how to keep some of these stories and lessons that we've learned go beyond February 28th, or in this year, February 29th. So let's talk about it. Uh, tonight, I have some wonderful guests with me, and I'll introduce them in just a second. But we wanted to do an episode where we talk frankly about lessons of inclusion, diversity in the stands, on the field, why representation matters, and the side of our sport that continues to rear its ugly head, racism towards players and fans. I couldn't do this alone, so I'm going to bring in uh, my two wonderful guests that I have with me tonight. First off, we have the president of AO Raleigh and also the chapter advisory council representative for Region 5, which covers the Carolinas. Ebony Christmas is with us. Ebony, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing awesome. I appreciate you being here. Uh, next up, he's one of the OGs in AO, like longtime AO OG, the president of AODC. Introduction not necessary. Marcel Hilly, my man, welcome. Thanks a lot, Donald. Thanks for having me here. So thank you guys both for joining me on this. I want to begin the conversation with the history of Black players in this sport. Growing up, there was a few Black soccer players people that made it. Uh, Ebony, I'm going to start with you. First off, just tell us, how did you get into soccer? And when you were getting interested in the sport, were there any players that really got you to believe that this was a sport you could get behind? Um, so I didn't really get into the sport until about 2010. Mm -hmm. um, that's when it was a world men's World Cup year and I was in Argentina. So it was a big, messy following. Um, so then I was following along for that World Cup, and then in 2011, I got I watched the full Women's World Cup, and that was when I got hooked immediately. And it was it's just been soccer ever since. When I got into it, it was mostly like Abby Wambach that was the more prevalent of the players. Um, Sydney Larue hadn't quite come up just yet. Um, she was more of the 2012 Olympics when she finally made her big boom. But I started there, and obviously I'm from North Carolina, so I had a lot of UNC players to look up to, um, especially Mia Hamm, that whole UNC squad, of like Ashlyn Harris, Tobin Heath, and all of those players. We'll overlook your love for UNC oh, no, I'm just tonight. <laughs> no, I know. Um, but no, that's that's interesting. And, and I'll bring in Marcel. Marcel, you, you have quite a different history. Tell us a little bit about what got you sparked with with soccer and, and some of the players that you looked up to? Well, for me, um, I think you know this, my first game was a World Cup qualifier at RFK here in DC back in 2001, where some friends came down from New York and just said, hey, let's go hang out this weekend. Cool, what are we doing? What a soccer game, okay. And then, but then going to the game, just RFK was sold out, played Honduras in a World Cup qualifier, it was just crazy. And looking on the field, hey, Look at that guy. That's Eddie Pope. All right, Ernie Stewart. These guys, I immediately said, "Oh wow, this is not this. This is there are people that look like me out there." And I knew that there were because 
I remember watching the World Cup in 1994 when it was in the Detroit area. And I knew that it was a multicultural sport, a world sport. But again, just seeing it right in front of my face really helped a lot. That rep representation really does matter. And it, meant, and, it, and, it meant a lot, and it meant a lot to me as I was initially exposed to the sport at the highest level. Yeah, it, I agree that representation really matters. It, and it's funny, when I started, I, I mean, I started playing soccer as a young kid. I couldn't play football um, because I had a heart condition, but the doctor said soccer is a good sport. And I, I really enjoyed it. I loved it. I was the only player that looked like me out there, except for those off years where my brother was also on the team. We were the, we were the two. And I didn't realize that there was a whole other world of this sport until probably the 94 World Cup. And, you know, seeing players like Eddie Pope and Ernie Stewart, it, those type of guys like, oh, there are there are brothers that play the game. Um, and it, it translates into the stands. There's definitely times where, you know, I am the only person of color in stands or, you know, one of you guys is there. I mean, for those of you out there, Marcel and I met because we were at a DC United game. It was one of the first DC United games I went to. And I see him wearing a Detroit Tigers hat. Both he and I are from Michigan. And I walked up to him and was like, we, we got to be friends because we're you're wearing a Detroit hat. It was that simple, but at the same time, it was also we were two of the only ones in the stands. And that representation ha that's changed over the years. It's been great. And I think there's always, you know, more that we can do to increase the accessibility, increase the diversity in the stands and, you know, within the fan base of, of U.S. soccer. But I really don't think that the representation has come as far along as I would hope it to be. And that's partly why I always like to look back on during Black History Month and look at some of the successes that we have had. Um, I'll go with you, uh, Ebony. You, you mentioned coming up and listen, watching a lot of the women's players. Have you found that representation has changed, good or bad, since you started watching? The representation in the women's side has changed a lot, especially because now you have like a lot of these older uh, players coming up especially like Jessica McDonald. Uh, Lynn Williams not that old, but she is coming up now, especially this year. Um, Mal Pugh, um, Sydney LaRue, new draftee Tazaria King. Um, she's a state grad, so I was like all for her. And like that was big for me too, because one, I've never seen a state player make it that high, but I've also never seen one that was so deeply rooted in NC State culture come that high. Um, on the men's side, it hasn't really. You had like the Jermaine Jones um, come up and he he had his style of play um, that was like in your face and brutal, but he he changed the game too a little bit, I think, because they weren't used to seeing that from a strong black guy. And when he stepped on the field, it definitely made a difference. Mm -hmm. So that representation matters to me too. Yeah, I think that's the best representation we've had. Like now in like the last two or three years is the best representation we've had on a long time on the field, or at least on the women's side. The men's side still has a little bit of ways to go, I think. Yeah, and I mean, I think with the men now, we see some of the younger kids coming up um, that are starting to, to do that. You have Weston Kenny, Tyler Adams, and, uh, you know, Tim Way, if he can, you know, ever get healthy, you know, stay healthy, man. Um, but those type of guys, but like, I mean, growing up in the middle, I, I'm, I'm as old as DeMarcus Beasley. So DeMarcus Beasley is, is the man to me because 
he he did it for so long, the longevity of his career, and just the fact that he started when we were like 17 or 18 years old and just retired last year. Gucci Onyewu, Eddie Pope, those type of guys that were really at the forefront. But for me, the black players that I used to watch a lot played internationally. It was the Brazilians. It was, you know, Ronaldo. It was George Weah, Michael Essien, those type, Drogba, those type of guys where we, you kind of had to look abroad to kind of get the representation that you were seeking sometimes. Marcel, what do you chime in with what you, what you think? Well, yeah, I do think the representation has always been there and I think it's increasing. Um, talking about players that you've admired over the years, one of the first players I really was a big fan of when I started watching soccer was Edgar Davids. And mm-hmm. I recall when Holland played the U.S. in a friendly back in Old Man 2002, he and Claudio Reyna just went at it and for like the, for an entire match. And I thought I was just, I was in heaven watching that. Um, representation, representation is important. And I think that as the game and the team gets a higher profile in America, more and more kids are going to see it as an option. And I think that's important too. And I think that as the men's and women's teams both progress, they, as they do well, they're going to attract more people. A rising tide lifts all ships. Um, I know you saw the picture a while back that circling when Weston McKinney was take, took a picture with Carlos Bocanegra back when he was the captain of the U.S. team. Mm-hmm. And to see him now playing for the U.S., that's, that, that made an impression on him as a kid. So now hopefully he gets to the point where he can make an impression on young future young U.S. soccer national team players. So I, just, I think that it's important that as the national team goes on that they continue to to set a good example and just provide people with an option that made that people in our generation or younger may not have grown up thinking, oh, okay, maybe I'll go play soccer instead. But now that's people see that more often as a, okay, maybe I can go play this. Let me go try this because I see these people, I see these people doing it over here and doing well. So maybe this might be an option for me. Mm-hmm. And that's on both sides, men's and women. And I think, I think that's important. And I think that's a good way to grow representation in the game. One final question before we shift topics slightly, it, you brought up a good point that, you know, the, the types of players that we've seen, Ebony, you mentioned how Jermaine Jones was a type of athlete that many American soccer fans had not yet seen. Types, you know, guys like him and Onyewu were guys that were they were strong, they were tough, they got in your face, they they had a little swagger to them, and those type of things leads me to something that I kind of think is the wrong type of representation, and that is when people like to take athletes from other sports and say, what if they played soccer? Um, the biggest you know, thing we hear is what if the best athletes in America played soccer? And they talk about LeBron James and they talk about, you know, guys on basketball and football field, Barry Sanders. They talk about those guys like, what if we just put a ball on their foot? They'd be awesome. And I feel like this striking the wrong tone because those guys are the best at what they do. And to reduce them to just saying we could just take away a basketball and apply a soccer ball and they'd be just as great is really not doing it justice because I feel like the representation that we're looking for in the inclusion that we're looking for, and that's the topic kind of shifting to is we want to have people doing clinics in the underserved communities. We want to have people teaching the game of soccer from a younger age so that, and getting more of these players to stick with it. There's a lot of times I, I mean, I got no instruction growing up. I played a lot of soccer and it was all rec league where my parents were signing me up. It was not a coach saying, yo, you can do this for a living. You can play high school ball. You can play college ball like they were doing for other sports like basketball and baseball and football. Uh, Ebony, 
growing up in North Carolina, you're surrounded by soccer talent, but was that ever an issue? And is that something where you know, even in your, you kind of came to the game later uh, than, than the two of us did, was that something that you saw or just wasn't on your radar until a certain point? No, I mean, I saw it because we had Castle. Um, so I went to a predominantly white school. Um, everybody played Castle there. Um, and now it's NCFC youth. And so, like, you, you saw those shirts everywhere. So I knew what it was. I knew the just behind what soccer was, but I, it never caught my attention because growing up, it was always basketball and football in our house. So, and I didn't really see anyone looking like me playing Castle as well. It was, it, it was very predominantly a white sport, especially where I grew up. It kind of, it kind of fell onto my radar when I started to get into like my 11th and 12th grade year of high school. Like, oh, I understand it a little bit more now because that was about the time I really started to get into the sport. But growing up, I grew up, it was very much, it was, I'm going to say inner city, um, but it, it definitely wasn't a sport that we played a lot. So mm-hmm. it was definitely something that you'd hear about it spark like once every four years, but it's nothing really. That makes a lot of sense. And I think background, you know, what your what environment you everyone grows up in is different. And that also leads to some of these uh, perspectives and even just the, the the access. You know, some people may have had the access. Some people get exposed to it at a different age. Uh, that all makes sense depending on our surroundings. Marcel, what did you uh, wrap us up on that part? Well, yeah, I definitely think um, the level of exposure that you have really dictates can really control that because growing up as a kid in Detroit, you know, soccer was never really a thing. I never really knew about it. Now, when the US, now everyone knew about it when the World Cup came to America in 94. And fun fact, I'm not sure if you know this or not, but when the US played in the Pontiac Silverdome, I was actually at my grandparents' house about 15 minutes away in Pontiac. And I could have gone, I could have easily gotten my dad to take me to the game, but I just didn't think about it at, at, the, at the time. Of course, kicking myself now because I should be like, "Dad, Dad, let's go, let's go." But um, uh, it's yeah, it just depends on your level of exposure. Because if you see a game play at the highest level, we, we could have seen back then when I was in the mid '90s. You, you know, in the Champions League matches, even back then, or Premier League games, if that was on cable back then, I'd have I'm certain I would have gotten into it then, as opposed to getting into it in the you know in 2001 when I did. So it just if you put a quality product out there, people are going to find it. And I just think that that really dictates it for a lot of people growing up. Uh, you kind of brought up a point about like accessibility because yeah. living in North Carolina, we had the courage here, like the old courage, not the new courage. Um, and I never knew about them. I never knew any of the players. Didn't even know we had a team here until North Carolina courage came back and they were talking about the history of it. And I was like, didn't even know we had a team and I lived 15 minutes away from where they played. So I get it. Like you, you hit the, you hit it on the head. Like it was, it was definitely all about exposure and accessibility and marketing, marketing and all that kind of stuff. I want to shift gears to inclusion. We kind of have kind of started talking about it, but do you guys think the inclusion is there? And by that, I mean, you know, during Black History Month, I, I've written some articles and some of the the stories that I think 
deserve to be told and deserve to be retold and retold until people recognize it as part of our overall soccer history. But I feel like during soccer, Black History Month, the, the Black soccer history is buried. We don't hear about it on Twitter. It's not like U.S. soccer is talking about it and bringing up Eddie Hawkins or Kim Crabb, two, you know, two pioneers of the game. Do you think that – is there a way to have our history more properly highlighted and acknowledged by everyone? Uh, and it is not just necessarily U.S. soccer. I'm talking UEFA. I'm talking FIFA. I'm talking you know, even the African Federation. Is there a way to get them to, to recognize that this history needs to be told and we shouldn't have a, just a month to do it? I think that you're right. I mean, FIFA should give this a platform. UEFA should give this a platform. CAF and the African Federation should be giving this, giving, should have a voice because you could point to George Weah. You know, he was the man and he was there. He was a superstar. You know, go to Europe, Rude Hullet. Um, even here, just locally, I went to Howard University. Shaka Hislop got us to the NCAA title game in 89 and back to the quarters in 90. He was, a, he was an engineering major like me. So it's like that, that spoke to me. On a big on a big level i mean these are things that i think that all the federations could confederations could eat should be talking about and playing up that history that aspect it's just a way to get more people to be realized hey look this is something that people look like me do as well and can do very well at and i just think that they're missing out on an opportunity to market themselves and market the game by not doing it and not giving it more time more exposure especially during black history month I think that's something that MLS could do a lot of too. I mean, here, just locally here in America, you know, the NWSL as well. I mean, there's a lot here that could be spoken about that just isn't. They're missing out on opportunities to really expose the game to a greater amount of people to really broad further that further cast the net, as it were. We our history gets buried a lot all over the world. Um, not just, but it's worse here, I think, for some reason. And I and I don't know how we could even get U.S. soccer to reach out more about it, but it's something that starts with us as fans, and you do a really good job of it, especially with all your articles that you write every day for 28 or I guess 29 days this month, but it should go, it should be on a bigger platform than that, and I know that MLS does like that one video during Black mm -hmm. History Month with like three players, and it's weird, but because it's all we have but it's it reaches a lot more people because it is mls and how does that translate into the nwsl well that's that's another problem that we just have to overcome again but marcel you're right like it's it's it should be reaching further into uefa and and into afcon and things like that because we it's a huge history that we of, of soccer that is just being missed out on and it's and it's a part of history that is really fun that I think people should know about. Just watching even today's game, you have guys like you know, Sadio Mane, who I, I think as much credit as he gets for being one of the world-class players, I don't think he gets enough credit because he's on a team that has 10 other world-class players and he's kind of buried even there. And you know, you have some of these players that really, I think, push the envelope of redefining a position or or even defining a position you know claude makalele like the defensive midfielder isn't who he is if it wasn't for claude makalele guys like Thierry Henry and you know, who kind of brought the flair and the pizzazz and 
uh, Roger Milo, who invented the goal celebration, like no one ever did it before him. Um, and I don't think anyone will ever do it better than him because he just, you know, shattered the game back in 1990. Those type of stories need to be told. Those type of players need to be put on a platform and say, this is the face of world soccer. And here in the United States, we can obviously do a lot better. The, the fact that I don't think I've seen a, a, even a tweet acknowledging Black History Month from U.S. Soccer's Twitter. That's that's it's it's unconscionable. I mean, it's so easy to do that, and they won't, and and we can't even get that. And that's kind of why I write the stories that I do, and that's kind of why I want to do this tonight and have you guys on because we want to have these conversations. And I think some of this history needs to be shared for the first time, and some of the some of these stories need to carry on beyond when the calendar turns to March. I'm as guilty of it as anyone. Some of these stories we forget about until next February first. I want to make sure these conversations continue beyond that. Okay, so now that we've gotten some of these out of the way, I want to do shift to one that is very important but also very difficult to talk about. It's the ugly side of the sport. It's racism in the stands and on the field. Um, it's something that has not ever gone away, has come to the forefront again recently in Serie A several times, and but it still continues to be everywhere. Um, I know the two of you have probably had to experience it in life, in the stands, on the field, online, whatever. Uh, but I want to start with this question, and I don't know how best to say it without just saying it and being blunt about it. And if you guys feel uncomfortable sharing anything, please do not hesitate to say so. But what should be done about racism on the field or in the stands? Ebony, it's a point of question and I, I know that's kind of a loaded one but I'm gonna let you have the floor first it it kind of starts with policing ourselves um because believe it or not us as black folks can be racist against our own people like if I'm a capo for a game you you'll actually see more racism come from like an, another black fan because they're like well how are you needing me you don't know what you're doing. You don't know the sport well. I'm, I'm my black history in the sport may be short, but it's, it's still there. Um, but kind of starts with seeing ourselves and how we treat other black people in this sport, whether they're on the field or in the stands, and then we can move on to policing the actual people that are being racist. Um, it starts with kicking them out, point blank. Period. I. When we played in Mexico um, after the Trump election, I put out a very pointed message that said, if if being racist, homophobic, sexist is one of the things you want to do in our section, don't come because that's not who we're about and that's not what we are about. Um, and then for the players on the field, that one's a little bit harder because they, they're getting a check for this. We're not. And it's kind of hard to say, well, how do you how do you have them face that type of racism every day? They step on the field and not get mad and not. And how do you make them be like see that even though there are a couple of racist people out there, that we're not all racist and we are with them fighting this fight because we we want to see the game improve too, and we want to see that type of hatred out of it so that we can all enjoy this game together. 
You brought up a really good point. The sense that the, the fact that the difference between us and players and I mean, players go through it as well, but the fact that we don't get a check for this, we don't, we don't sign up. For, no one signs up for it, but we really don't. We're there to support players on the field. We're, we're there to support a team and to have to deal with stuff like that on, on the capital stand, or even just while you're trying to enjoy a game, what it boils down to is just, it's, it's astounding that it still happens and we're in 2020. Um, but it's again, the unfortunate part of the game, Marcel, I'll, I'll bring you in to uh, comment with anything that you would want to say on this. I think it's important, as has been said to police ourselves and to have a zero tolerance, tolerance policy, just because it can't be abided by, it can't be explained away or rationalized. You know what you're saying when you say it. And, I've been around long enough. I've seen it in so many different forms that I'm going to check it instantly. And if I'm running the section, you're gone. You're not coming back, period. And, you know, not just through at the, at the national team level, but just throughout soccer and different levels. And you're well aware of this. I've lost friendships over this. And you can't look back over that. You can't look back on that. You have to always stand for what's right, especially as being chapter leaders. We have to set the example for everyone in the section. And I'm, I can't, you can't let anything slide. You have to be vigilant, constantly vigilant. And that's just how it is. That's part of what it means for what we're doing. We're stepping up, we're doing more as chapter leaders and that's just part of it. And like I said, it's just, there's no room for anything. There's no, there's, there's, there has to be zero tolerance just because I know how I felt when I first started coming to games and I wouldn't want any new person at a game to ever feel uncomfortable in any way. And that's our responsibility as chapter leaders to make sure that people if you're if it's your first game, I want you to have just as good as a time as someone who's at their 200 cap, and that's part of my responsibility as a chapter leader that I do not take lightly. Yeah, and, and it is difficult because this is again when you say zero tolerance, that means everything, right? This you know racism, homo you know homophobic, sexism, everything. all of the everything. all the isms, everything, right? Uh, obviously, it doesn't affect some things. Don't affect me personally as opposed to other things, but all of those are correct. All of those should be stricken from our society, much less the stands. And right now is, it's, you know, I always tell people about, I've, I've heard the N word in a section several times. I've heard, you know, things close to it, coded language. Uh, you're visible, you stand out, things like that, that we all know, means something different than than what most people would think it means i've had it directed at me i've had it directed at my friends and and for me like the first thing the first thing that i would do is i would go to that friend's defense i've literally i've heard it in stands and literally almost like someone had to stop me from barreling down three rows of stands at rfk once to stop me from doing something that would throw me in jail but really what it boils down to is that that means that that person is no longer comfortable in the section. And if it was something like, if something happened on the stands, if we, you know, God forbid we go on an away trip somewhere and the opposing fans start taunting our players like that, I, it'd be one of those things where I would want the players to make the decision, whatever players it, it's affecting, if they make the decision to walk off the field, I want all our team to walk off the field. And if they were to do that, I'm leaving the stands. And I, I want everyone to, to walk with me, not behind me, not in front of me, 
to walk with me. I think that is where sometimes we fall short in, in other people's reactions to things. I've, you know, the N word has been directed at me. It's been directed at friends. It's been directed at people that we don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. And the, 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 the thing is the reaction and the reaction, if it's bad, can sometimes feel worse than the actual word being said or the actual language being said. So I, I think when, you know, for those of you out there who are listening, if, if you ever hear that, standing up for what's right is the first thing. And this, the main part is to make sure that that person who is affected by it, make sure they understand that, that, they, that they, they have love. They have people behind them. They have people standing toe-to-toe with them to say that that's not right and to excommunicate that person who's doing it out of our section, out of our organization, and make it so that if we have to do it one at a time, we do it. But no one should ever have to experience what I know that, I mean, I know Marcel's experienced it, I've experienced it, Ebony, I'm sure you've experienced it as well, but I never wanna have that feeling. And the problem with this is I still have that feeling. I still remember the incidents that have happened to me or involved that, that I've been involved in, it never goes away, but it always keeps me on my toes when I do intersection because I need, because the other part of it is we're all chapter leaders. We all, I've been a chapter leader. You guys are chapter leaders. Currently our reaction is what people look for. And that is the most unfortunate part is that we have to act above. We truly do. And way more than anyone else would. I can't go down and beat beat the hell out of somebody for saying that word to me because everyone will just remember my reaction. I'm sure you guys feel similar thoughts about that part, but yeah, it's, it, it's a difficult. Go ahead. Go ahead, Anthony, please. I mean, it, it, you're, you're 100% right. It is harder to deal with that type of language, especially as a chapter leader, um, especially as a, as a Black chapter leader because the expectations for you are higher because they want you to somehow prove your worth um, as a leader and as a as a even more as a black leader. So you kind of can't react as you normally would. Um, because like, like I said, I'm a president of a chapter. Marcel's the president of a chapter. We represent that chapter everywhere we go, no matter what. And one wrong move not only looks bad on AO National, it was bad on our chapter individually and on all Black chapter leaders total, which is a big weight to carry on all of our shoulders. So it kind of starts with like policing yourself, like you're saying, and then policing the section and then policing those, like policing the state, like the stadium. Because like you said, if, if one player makes the decision to walk off, I want the whole team walking off. Because if they're supposed to be playing together as a unit, they should be a brotherhood. And just like all of us in the stands, if one person, if they walk off and you decide to walk off, I'm walking off with you side by side. Because we have to show that type of unity together, whether it's black, white, whatever. It's just something that is going to always be, I wouldn't say prevalent, but I would say hopefully diminishing until because I don't think rest, until it's all gone, but I don't think rest, racism will ever truly be out of our sport, especially with what's happening in Europe right now. It's 2020. 
And I still got players getting monkey chants and being called N-words and Nazi salutes are being thrown at them. And players, instead of walking off with them, were trying to keep them on the field. And that's not that's not what I think AO is about. And that's not what personally I'm about. If and I, I feel it's the same way for you too, because you two have been you two have been involved in AO and in soccer for a lot longer than me. So kind of look up to those like to you too to kind of guide you into how to lead these chapters and how to present yourself um, for leadership. So I feel like you two have set the precedent of we're strong, we're staying here no matter what you say, and we'll work it out together kind of setting. Don't say yourself short. You you did something that Marcel and I never had a chance to do, which is take over a chapter position before you basically before you're old enough to join the bar that you can watch the games at. But like that that sort but that sort of bond is there, right? Like, you know, when you're on the stands doing your thing, I'm there to back you up. When Marcel's on the stands, I'm there to back him up. When I'm on the stands, that you guys are backing me up. Like we have that that community already. And AO has been great in that respect. And I think it should always be that that kind of family, that kind of, hey, I got your back, no matter what. We're going into this together. We're, you know, away matches. It's not us, you know, the three of us versus the world. It's all it's all of us in that section. And and I think sometimes people forget that. And that's something that should always be at the forefront is that we're going into this together, that some people need the extra backing. They need the extra support because they're going into a situation that you may not understand is difficult, but it is. Just to hop in for a second, I think that's that's a very good point because, you know, we've we've done a lot more than the new people, newer people have done, right? I mean, I've been to three World Cups. I've been to Estadio Azteca three times. I know what it's like to go into a hostile environment in these situations. And as a chapter leader, it's like, it's like, it's just, as has been said, we need to set the example. We need to provi- pro- pro- provide that environment for newer members because talking about representation, talking about trying to get people to come to games, if people don't feel safe, people don't feel comfortable, they're not going to want to do this, keep doing this, and to help fill the section. So it's just important. And, you know, anything that is said to me at this point, I've already heard it and worse. So nothing's going to bother me at this point. Um, I'm going to take action. I'm going to stand up for myself, for my chapter, for this organization. But you're not going to bother me personally anymore. You know, anything that anyone says to me, I've been called worse things by better people. So do your worst. I'll take it and smile. But I'll be there. But I'm going to be there for my chapter, for this organization. Because that's what you do as a chapter leader. That's a really good point. Um, and we're running a, you know, we're running towards the end of this dialogue, this conversation. Obviously, this is only the beginning of it for us. And I want to thank you guys for coming on. Before we leave, though, I do just want to wrap it up. If you guys have closing thoughts about where do we go from here? What's next? How do we what's the most important takeaway in your mind that you want that you want people out there to to absorb from this? And Ebony, I'll let you go first. I think where we are is good we can always grow it kind of starts with making this game accessible to all and whether that's making more fields available making more balls available making making this sport 
feel like it should be your go-to sport first before you look at basketball or football or something like that. That's the way we start and that's the way we keep them hooked. I think it all start, it like I said, it starts with us personally going out into the street and, hey, do you want to come to a game? Like with Dan and his free beer movement, that's one of the best things I've ever done. I buy a beer, buy you a ticket. They're like 10 bucks for my local team. And I show you why I love this sport so much. And hopefully you can see it too. And hopefully you tell your next friend and your next friend, get your kids started early. It's just a matter of making sure we are pushing people that look like us to accept the game better than what it was perceived as when we were younger. So whether that starts with me getting better educated about all the Black players that I've seen come through and sharing that knowledge or starting them younger and showing them who's here now and showing them how they've grown in this sport and how they are thriving too. I think that's also something I can do personally. And then it's just a matter of getting, just bring about AO, getting chapters more diverse. I mean, there are times when I'm literally the only Black person in my bar for, for games. So, and it feels weird because I'm trying to trying to grow this game and I can see, I see where the market is and I see that it's profitable, but I also want to see more of me in there. So it just, I guess that's where I would go first. I mean, I think that's a very good point. And I think that it really starts, well, one starts with us, right? Because um, when I started going to games in 2001, I tell this joke all the time, Donald's heard it more than once for years. I was, the first, I was the only black guy in the first 10 rows of the supporter section. The camera always found me at games because I was literally the only black person at games. And there was, a, there was one other guy, there was one other guy out in San Jose. So it was either one of us that was at every US soccer game for a few years. And thankfully that's changed, but that presence, that like I said, going back to the same term, representation that matters. If I can be that one person on TV that that one other per black person say, hey, wait, oh, cool, he's there. Okay, so maybe, maybe I can go to a game. Maybe I should check it out. If I did that just once, I'd be a happy man. And it's just, we just have to keep on it. And not just being evangelical about it, although that is great, but just make it a part of your daily life. You know, like I wear my soccer shirts to the gym. People ask me about the, when in the U.S. coming back to, you come, come back to D.C. or when is D.C.'s next game? It's just, if it's a part of your daily life and just, be willing to talk to your friends about it because it's part of your life. And if you explain it to people, if you explain why much you enjoy it, they may want to give it a try. I mean, it's just own it, accept it, and just it's part of who you are. And combine that with being evangelical, that with being out, reaching out to people, I think that's a good way to grow at our level and to continue to provide a good option in our chapters, right? I mean, because um, the DC chapter bar is right in the middle of right in the middle of DC, where it's a place where people can go after work, watch a game, or take a long lunch. And it's important to foster that relationship and have that environment in every AO city where people can come into a game, come watch the game with sound, and create that environment where you know you can always go watch a game, and that's going to help build it as well. So it's a lot. It's a lot that can be done, but it's just constant vigilance and just thinking about it, and just always trying to figure out how to create the best environment for people to come to games, how to make people feel comfortable wanting to come to games, wanting to come to watch parties. 
because that's where it starts. You know, we're not going to have USA Mexico every six weeks. We're not. So how can we make people get excited about us playing Slovakia on some random Tuesday at three o'clock? That's a bigger challenge than the big games. So, but I think yeah. we're doing a good job with it. I think AO, the network in general, is doing a good job of it. I just think that we just need to continue doing that, continue fostering relationships with these watch parties. And I think that there's still a lot of potential for growth. You guys both brought up great points and they kind of summarize what I was going to refer to. The fact that we, when we go, we have a lot of fun. I, I can't tell you how many people come up to me and they say, man, you travel a lot. You look like you're having a lot of fun at all these games. And I'm like, well, I am. Just come with me to a game. You're going to have just as much fun and you're going to want to come back too. And I mean, there was a time where I'd bring a person to every game and that person would get hooked. And that was it. I didn't have to do anything else. They became, they became the choir and they went out and they became the preacher and went out and preached the gospel of, of how fun this sport is, how fun it can be, how fun this organization is. And really it's just about, you know, first of all, yes, I, I think I, I can do more. I think everyone can do more. It, and I'm always trying to figure out what's, what's next, what's the next step for me? What, what can we do to get more people in the stands, more people in our chapters, bars, more people on the field, more people on the sidelines, more people in the boardrooms and the front offices, people who can tap into these networks and really make it so that more people that look like us show up. I was at the AGM a couple of weeks ago for US soccer and there was maybe a thousand people there and I counted five black people. My hope is by next year, there's more than five black people there, that there's way more representation even there because that's the room where the decisions are made. I was lucky that I was involved in that process, but I want other people to be able to experience it. It's, it's in Atlanta. I want to be able to you know, bring out some local Atlanta kids and have them play soccer and have them see where when they these guys are talking about where the money goes, how the pie is split up find some people and say, this is what it should be going to this. We're in Atlanta, this city, these kids should be getting the, the, the best access possible that we didn't have growing up better access than we did. And, and I think that's the first step we can start in our local communities. We can start with, you know, with ourselves and try and make it so that other people are bringing, you know, we're bringing people along in this process, Elevating them to chapter leaders or getting them involved in chapter leadership, getting them involved in our chapters in other ways is going to be a great step. But I think if we can do it, then that will show everyone that this is possible on a, on a, on a macro level. And I think that's the that's my hope that that we take away from this month, this week, you know, this day that we can always get better as an organization. And this is one way to do it. But. I think we will end it here. Um, it's going to do it for this episode of the AO podcast. I, I really want to thank Ebony and Marcel. Thank you both for joining me for this special episode. You both know you are my people. I, I appreciate you. Uh, and I know I'll be seeing you guys real soon. And for those of you out there listening, we thank you for joining us. Some of these conversations were difficult. All of them were important. But it's vital that these conversations continue into March and beyond. So let us all grow better. Let us all grow more inclusive as a society each day. And we can do something within to help advance the game for AO and our communities. That's why our organization is so great. So again, thank you, Ebony. Thank you, Marcel. Justin and Corey will be back next time. But until then, 
I'm Donald Wine. We will see you all soon.